This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome to another episode of the podcast, Another Way, produced by Equal Citizens. This is Adam Eichen, the executive director of Equal Citizens. As I'm sure you've noticed by now, we're bypassing our schedule of posting new podcast episodes only on Thursdays. Frankly, there's just so much going on, and we have so much content for you, that we're going to upload that content to the podcast feed as soon as we finish producing it. I will still be continuing my short mini-series on the fight for the For the People Act, but we'll intersperse that other content between the episodes of the mini-series. And today, I'm going to bring you some of that other content, and I think you'll really enjoy it. On August 5th, Lauren Schlesig moderated a discussion between two experts on the filibuster and the For the People Act. Cliff Albright, the co-founder of Black Voters Matter, and Ellie Zupnik, spokesperson for Fix Our Senate. Jana Morgan, the director of the Declaration for American Democracy Coalition, made a special guest appearance as well. This event, entitled Fixing the Filibuster to Save Democracy, gave an in-depth look at the stakes of the filibuster fight, the benefits of the For the People Act, and what to expect in the coming weeks. I'm rebroadcasting the audio of this discussion in full. For those of you who didn't attend, I think you'll learn a lot. And for those of you who actually were at the event, feel free to listen again, because I'm sure that you'll find even more to take away from it on a second listen. And for both sets of audiences, please consider sharing this audio with anyone who you think might find it compelling. I'll also include a link to the video recording of the webinar in the show notes. With that, enjoy the audio from Fixing the Filibuster to Save Democracy. Welcome, everybody. I'm Larry Lessig, and I'm grateful you're tuning into this conversation sponsored by Equal Citizens and so many other organizations, including Black Voters Matter, Fix Our Senate, The Workers' Circle, Democracy Matters, American Democracy, Open Democracy, Saves, Small Planet Institute, Women's March, and Citizens United represent us, and the, someone's been in this fight for a long time, Common Cause. This fight is incredibly important, but the conversation we're going to have right now will be focused on what has to happen to make this successful. And it's a fight not just in our democracy generally, this fight about the filibuster, but especially a fight about its role in this most important package of democratic reform that our Congress has considered since the Voting Rights Act of 1965. That reform is the For the People Act a.k.a. H.R. 1, a.k.a. Senate 1. And that reform, or some version of that reform, I think is likely to have enough votes to pass in the United States Senate, if not this week, then next week. But of course, we live in a strange sort of democracy. When we're having enough votes to pass in Congress with the president willing to sign your bill does not necessarily mean your bill will be passed. Because standing in the way of this law being passed is a democratically strange institution, the filibuster, within a democratically strange institution, the United States Senate. And the reality is that if the rules of the filibuster are not changed, 
then this bill and so much else will not pass the United States Congress. Now there's all sorts of excitement in Washington right now that Joe Biden is gonna pass a infrastructure bill with bipartisan support. And I'm happy about that as well. But we should not forget that because of the filibuster, that infrastructure spending bill will have no infrastructure spending to address climate change. And celebrations notwithstanding, we should recognize that because of the filibuster, there's a whole gaggle of legislation that America wants to pass that is not gonna pass. We're not gonna pass climate change legislation in this Congress so long as there is this filibuster. We're not gonna change the minimum wage. We're not gonna have healthcare reform. We're not gonna address student debt and we're not gonna address voting rights reform, the kind in HR1 or any other kind at all. Now it's that last fact that explains the obviousness of one of our two guests in this conversation, Cliff Albright, because though many will try to suggest that the filibuster is part of our tradition or that the filibuster is not racist, the truth is that the modern filibuster is not part of our tradition. But if it is, we should remember one thing about that tradition, that in the time between Reconstruction, 1877, and the passage of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, the only bills that the filibuster has actually stopped, not slowed, but actually stopped were civil rights bills, anti-lynching legislation most frequently. And of course, it almost stopped the Voting Rights Act of 1965, but for the extraordinary effort of an extraordinary president to get beyond the filibuster in the Senate, Lyndon Johnson. So that's why this conversation must put race right at the center. Cliff Albright is a co-founder of Black Voters Matter. He's a 2020 Soros Equality Fellow. Black Voters Matter Fund builds community and organizational capacity related to black voting power. They received national attention in 2017 when they astonished the world by helping to mobilize so many voters, so many black voters during the United States Senate race between Doug Jones and Roy Moore, electing a Democrat in that overwhelmingly Republican state. Since then, he and the BVM team have traveled throughout 13 primarily Southern states in the, quote, blackest bus in America, end quote, energizing voters and exposing voter suppression. And he serves as an instructor of African-American studies at several universities. Joining Cliff is Ellie Zupnik. He is the spokesman for Fix Our Senate, which is a coalition of organizations fighting to eliminate or reform the filibuster. Ellie came to Fix Our Senate following 10 years as a staffer in the United States Senate including six years as communications director for Senator Patty Murray, from a Democrat from Washington. In addition to his work in the Senate, Ellie has extensive political campaign experience. He took his time from the Senate to work in a number of senatorial campaigns, including Chris Murphy's successful 2012 bid in Connecticut. Okay, but before we get to the conversation about the filibuster with Ellie and Cliff, We've asked uh, Jana Morgan, who is the director of the Declaration for American Democracy, insiders call it DFAD, to give us an update on the status of the For the People Act, HR1. DFAD is a coalition of more than 230 groups from labor, racial justice, faith, women's rights, environmental, good government, and many other important organizations um, on a mission to take back our democracy and give power to the people the first step, I hope, 
will be passing this critical legislation. She has previously served as Director of Advocacy and Campaigns um, at the International Corporate Accountability Roundtable. And before that, she was Director of Publish What You Pay in the United States, um, uh, uh, What You Pay, United States. Um, okay, so we're going to shift now to Jana. Jana, are you here? Yes, hello, thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much for inviting me to be a part of this wonderful event for that great introduction. Um, I wanna thank everyone for joining us tonight to learn more about how we can bust the filibuster and also to learn more about the For the People Act, uh, which is groundbreaking legislation that would get big money out of politics, that would stop partisan gerrymandering, restore government ethics, and of course, protect the freedom to vote. And I wanna do a special thank you to all of the activists who are out there who have been fighting for the passage of the For the People Act for the past few years, and especially so intensely over the past few months, we are making incredible progress. And the reason this is so important is that America is at a crossroads moment right now. After attempts to undermine the legitimacy of the 2020 elections, the January 6th attack on our nation, and the anti-voter laws being passed around the country, our democracy is in a real moment of crisis. And years in the future, the eyes of, the history, the eyes of history are going to look back at us in this moment, and I hope those eyes will be smiling because we did everything we could to protect the freedom to vote and to build a democracy that actually works for the people in this country. And we can do that by passing the For the People Act. So the For the People Act passed the House of Representatives in March, had a hearing in the Senate, and it went up for a vote earlier this summer in the Senate, but Republicans in the Senate used the filibuster to block the bill from even having a debate. Imagine a bill that has the support of eight out of 10 Americans, including majorities amongst Democrats, Republicans, and independents, and yet Senate Republicans block even having a discussion about this bill. So we need the Senate to take up this bill again and to not let anything, including the Jim Crow filibuster, stand in its way. And we are right now in the middle of an incredible week of advocacy to make that happen. So we at the Declaration for American Democracy and our over 230 members just hosted the Recess Can Wait, Our Democracy Can't Week of Action. Working with partners like the Center for American Progress, Black Voters Matter, and Citizens United, Public Citizen, Common Cause, and many more, we brought 100 state legislators from 30 states across the country to Washington, D.C. to join the 50 state legislators from Texas who are on the front lines of defending the right to vote who are already here. And on Tuesday, we rallied on Capitol Hill with compelling speakers like Senators Klobuchar, Warnock, Merkley, Booker, and many other members of Congress, as well as legislators from states like Arizona, Florida, Texas, Georgia, West Virginia, and more, to tell the Senate that recess can wait, our democracy can't. And you can go to our recesscanwait.org website to see the live stream from that incredible event. And then just yesterday, DFAD partnered with Black Voters Matter, the Transformative Justice Coalition, and a number of other partners to host the President Biden Pick Aside March. And we went from the African-American History Museum to the White House to tell President Biden that he needs to do more to protect the sacred right to vote and ensure passage of the For the People Act. 
We've also hosted an incredible call-in day, which you can find out more about on our website. You can also write an LTE. There's a number of different ways that you can be a part of this Recess Can Wait uh, effort. And again, feel free to go to recesscanwait.org to learn more. And let me tell you, our advocacy has been working. We just heard reports today that the Senate leadership is considering a vote next week again on the For the People Act. But in order for us to be successful, we need to overcome the filibuster. And we are calling on Leader Schumer and the rest of the Senate to not go on recess until the For the People Act is the law of the land. So this has been such an inspiration, such an incredible week with all of these legislators who are putting their lives on hold to come to Washington, D.C. and advocate to protect the freedom to vote for all of us all across America and also to get big money out of politics, to stop partisan gerrymandering and to restore government ethics. And so if you want to be a part of that, please go to recesscanwait.org and learn more. You can also go and you can see the rally footage. You can see some of the footage from the, the march that we did yesterday um, and all the virtual programming that we have still planned for tomorrow because this week isn't over. And so you're probably asking yourself, what's next? What else can I do? What's in person? Um, on August 10th, next week, Tuesday, we are doing mobilizations in cities across the country. And we encourage you to attend one of these events, or if there isn't one, feel free to organize one in your own city. And our activists have great toolkits. They'll be able to walk you through exactly how to host an event, provide you with all the information and tools you need to have a successful mobilization. So if you're interested in that, again, go to recesscanwait.org, or you can learn more at our main website, declarationforamericandemocracy.org to see how you can engage in our activation happening on August 10th or how you can engage in any of our other actions that we'll be having in the coming weeks, visiting your representative, writing a letter to the editor, making a call to your senator. All of that is a part of the, the effort and the work that we need from people across the country to ensure we get the For the People Act across the finish line. So happy to turn it back over to you, Lawrence, and thanks so much for having me. Thank you, Jenna. Now, Cliff and Ellie, if you could jump to the screen. Great. So great to have you guys. Um, and um, I'm really eager for this conversation. Ellie, I want to start with you, um, who 10 years ago spent time in the Senate. Um, but I want you to give us a sense of where this institution, the filibuster, comes from. Is this something that was with us at the founding? Is this something that was the same in, 17, in 1880 as it is today? Or is this some innovation by the dark lord of Washington to destroy the capacity for democracy? That's a great question. Thank you for having me here. Thank you, uh, Equal Citizen. Thank you, Cliff. Thank you, Jenna, for that great update. This has been, uh, I think this is gonna be an exciting conversation and it comes at a key moment when we are truly at the cusp, I think, very close, closer than ever to really making the kind of change that the Senate needs to get things done. Uh, but you asked a great question. The reality is, of course not. The filibuster is not a part of the Senate. It was never intended to be a part of the Senate. In fact, when the framers of the Constitution created the Senate, they intentionally wanted to stay away from supermajority requirements. They saw in the Articles of Confederation that supermajorities led to gridlock led to dysfunction, uh, led to what one of the framers called a pertinacious minority blocking uh, any kind of progress. I believe that was Madison, but I'm sure you can correct me if I'm wrong. And it, they intentionally wanted to move away from that for, for a long time. 
for the first couple of decades of the Senate, a simple majority like the House could allow things to pass. It wasn't until uh, 1805, it was actually Aaron Burr in a mistake, as the story goes. He wanted to clean up the Senate rules. He uh, he eliminated uh, what was called the previous question motion, where a, a member of the Senate can call for a final vote and unwittingly created no mechanism to end debate as long as members were still on the floor and wanted to continue the debate. That wasn't something that was used for many, many decades. It wasn't until pre-Civil War when Southern Democrats realized that this was a tool that they can use to block civil rights, to block the North from lynching, anti-lynching legislation, from voting rights protections, uh, not even if that point it wasn't quite voting rights uh, in the South. But they realized that this was the tool they could use. They used it after the Civil War, through the Jim Crow era. Uh, President Obama called this a Jim Crow relic for, for very good reason. Over 200 anti-lynching laws were blocked. And it was uh, never intended to be this way. I think the uh, you mentioned, Larry, at the top, at the beginning, it was only civil rights and voting rights uh, that was being blocked by the filibuster. Most legislation, if it had a majority, it would pass. There's a famous story uh, about Lyndon Johnson that after uh, the, uh, I believe it was the 66 election, one of his top aides said to him, I think we have 55 votes for Medicare, so we're going to pass the Senate. There was never any there was never any assumption that you needed 60 votes. That is a recent thing. So you mentioned at the end uh, the uh, a certain dark lord. This really changed uh, recently. 2009, when I got to the Senate, was a big moment of change when Leader McConnell realized that the filibuster was a tool he can use to make President Obama and the party in power, the Democrats, look bad. That the voters voted Democrats in to run government, to deliver an agenda. And, President, and Leader McConnell realized that he had the ability from the minority to stop that without anyone noticing. And he was right. He blocked a big part of President Obama's agenda. They had 60 votes for a little while, they, then they lost 60 votes, and Democrats paid a price. They lost the House in 2010 because voters were frustrated. They lost the Senate in 2014. And since that time, it has been a weapon of pure partisan obstruction. It has stopped bipartisanship. It has created gridlock and dysfunction. It has created a de facto supermajority requirement. We're an already undemocratic, biased Senate that wildly overrepresents rural, conservative white states already is now even further rigged to the point where 40 senators, 41 senators representing sometimes as little as 23% of the country can block the will of the overwhelming majority. We see that on background checks, that 90% support got filibustered. We see that on voting rights, that's 80 plus percent support. It happened over and over. In fact, one last point, and then I'll stop here because I'm sure Cliff uh, has a lot to say about this too, is we, when we talk about the anti-lynching legislation, sometimes people think that this was a reflection of popular will, that people at the time were, and of course they were, but when Gallup started doing their polling, I believe it was in uh, 1917 or so, they saw that anti-lynching legislation had majority support, including in the South, but the filibuster was still able to stop it from becoming law. And that has continued throughout the decades. It has been turbocharged by Leader McConnell, Senator McConnell, uh, for the past 12 years, and it's got to go. It just does not make sense in today's Senate. So it's a, it's a really important point to emphasize that, you know, I, I teach constitutional law. The reality of constitutional law is that the actual written constitution means very little. It's the norms around the constitution. And the reason why this filibuster, you know, not a great idea ever, but hasn't really mattered that much until 20, 20, 2009, 
is that the norms of the Senate was you didn't invoke it except on the most important issues for you. Now, you know, it turned out the Democratic Party's most important issue was blocking civil rights in the South, which is why they invoked it when they did. Um, but you didn't invoke it on every bit of legislation. But now we do. And so the question isn't what the historical filibuster was or whether the historical filibuster makes sense, the traditional filibuster. It's really what does this modern filibuster, which gets invoked for every single important issue, say about our democracy? Um, now, you know, Cliff, you've been literally on the front line. You've been out there rallying people to this fight. Um, I just wonder when you when you you know have to get beyond the obvious point that we need voter rights legislation, you've got to explain this kind of puzzling point. What people say when they hear and understand that this weird rule of the Senate might make it so that the majority of Congress can't give what the majority of America wants them to give. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Larry. Thanks, Lawrence, for, for having me. Um, yeah, people don't get it, you know, because we when we were out there in the midst of, of December and, and early January, you know, trying to mobilize voters, Black voters in particular in, in Georgia, and, and, and saying that, you know, if we win these two seats, then we'll have a majority in the Senate. You know, the, the, the pitch line to folks wasn't, oh, but, you know, but we, we might actually need 60 votes <laughs> to get stuff done. That's not what we told folks, right? We told them if we get a majority, including the tiebreaker, that we'd be able to move and get action on the issues that we were passionate about, issues like voting rights, issues like police violence, issues like um, like how we deal with COVID and, and stimulus and healthcare and, and all of those issues. And so nowhere is anybody expecting or understanding why we have to get 60 votes. And the fact of the matter is we shouldn't have to, right? We have power, you know, folks and Democrats in the, in the Senate, in, in, in the House, and in the White House, President Biden has power that we literally risked our lives to give to him. And it's it's a hard sell to explain to people this filibuster thing and how we really need 60, 60 votes to, to get anything done. And it's an even harder thing to explain why we have a president who 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 said on, on, on the night that he accepted, right, his victory, said, you know, Black voters have always had my back and I always have yours. And, and, and we have to explain why in this moment when we need him to have our backs, as well as the rest of the country's back, the entire democracy's back, but in particular, the Black voters that are being targeted by this voter suppression in places like Georgia and Florida and, and, and in Texas and, and other states, why is it that he seems more concerned with preserving the filibuster than he is with preserving our voting rights? That's a hard thing to explain to folks. But when we explain to folks what we need to do, the actions we need to take in order to push this president, in order to push this Senate to take action, people get that. They don't wanna have to be in that position, but people are passionate and they've been responding. And that's why you've seen the kind of actions that Jana was just, just talking about taking place all across the country, really, and, and this week, you know, especially in D.C., and, and not just this week, over the past three, four weeks, I mean, we've had a member of the Congressional Black Caucus get arrested in each, literally each of the past four weeks. And so you're seeing actions across the country, you're seeing actions in D.C., you're seeing actions at the Senate Offices Building, and next week we're going to see increasing actions even at the, even at the Capitol itself. Yeah, I mean, I want to emphasize one point and then ask you a follow-up from what you just said. So I'm going to share my screen for a second. And um, so uh, Ellie made this point, but I want to 
emphasize it because I want to get you to see visually exactly how extraordinary this is. And what we're describing here is actually not something Joe Biden ever had to live with. So if it takes 41 votes to block legislation in the Senate, that means if you put together 21 states, you have the power to block anything in the Senate. Now here are the states, the smallest states where Trump won at least 10 points, um, by at least 10 points. Some he won by more than 30 points, but at least 10 points. So these 21 states represent the most extreme far right of America. Now they deserve power just like anybody else does. But the reality is that this filibuster means that that 21 states representing 21% of the population has the power to say hell no to anything the United States Senate or the United States Congress wants to do. Now, it's one thing to imagine this system where that happens once every blue moon. And it's one thing to imagine the system where the, the minority necessary to block is like close to a majority. But the idea that it's one fifth of the mm -hmm. freaking nation that gets to say nothing, you can't do anything unless we agree on it means we're not a majority democracy. We're a minority That's democracy, true. minoritarian. We're Iraq or Syria more clearly yeah. than we are what the framers of our constitution. Ellie was exactly right. They rejected supermajoritarianism that true. was in the Articles of Confederation. They said, we're gonna be a majoritarian institution. Now that, I mean, even I'm getting angry and I'm a boring law professor about this, right? So, so Cliff, when you're out there and you're explaining this 60 and you're saying Joe Biden needs to step up, are you feeling people beginning to feel anger for this president that we all love to love so much? Because God knows he is the perfect anecdote to, uh, antidote to uh, the last president. But um, but are you feeling anger growing about exactly what's not happening because of leadership here? Yeah, I mean it's it's, it's growing every day. You know, it's it's literally growing every day. And 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 that's not to say that there there aren't some things that he's done that people like, right? Um, you know, people people like the stimulus checks, right? The the, the child tax credit. So there are things that people have seen that they like, but at the same time, again, you can't explain to folks why he won't be just as passionate about voting rights as he is about infrastructure, right? People people just aren't connecting with that. So yes, people are getting upset increasingly every day. And then when you see things like, like just last week or the week before, when you see somebody who literally stormed the Capitol, broke into the Capitol, injured police officers, and gets sentenced to eight months, but then you look at what's going on in some of these states, taking Texas, for example, the case of Crystal Mason, Crystal Mason, who who had been released from prison, was 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 not told that she didn't no longer had she was on supervised um, um, on supervised probation and that she did not have her voting rights back, cast a provisional ballot, which was not counted, which was not counted. And and and, and for that faced criminal charges in five years, a sentence of five years for casting a vote that was not counted when she was not informed that she should have been by the state of what exactly her voting rights or lack of voting rights was. And so when you when people are seeing that, we see the hypocrisy, we see the impact that, that voter suppression is having on our community. And as I always say, voter suppression is a violent crime because the impacts of the policies that come about because of voter suppression, the impact of the policies that come about because you've got essentially a minority rule situation, th those policies have violent impacts 
in our lives. And so, yes, people are getting increasingly frustrated and not understanding why President Biden is not doing more on this issue of voting rights, why he's not doing more to speak out more forcefully against the filibuster. People were very upset about his response even just just the other night, a couple of weeks ago at his town hall, where he was asked, you could see the frustration from Don Lemon, who as a journalist, you could see the frustration. If you could see that in him when he asked the question about why, why keep the filibuster? You can only imagine what people in our communities are feeling when we're seeing what's going on on a daily basis. And again, that's why people are going to the, the extent that we've been going, having regular actions, having national days of actions, people submitting themselves. Literally the other day, Monday, hundreds of people getting arrested, um, fighting for this issue. It's going to increase until we get these until we get these voting rights. And as Jane said earlier, recess has got to wait until we get the voting rights passed and we need the president to join us um, in, in pushing. You you brought up Lyndon Johnson just a minute ago, and I've been saying this over and over again, we need President Biden to have a Lyndon B. Johnson moment. Yes, we know that Lyndon B. Johnson had to be pushed into taking action on voting rights. We know that he told Dr. King in the movement, now's not the time, the country's not ready for it. But at the end of the day, he had his moment where he twisted some arms, when he got in some people's faces, where he cut some deals and he got it done. We need President Biden to lean in the same way Lyndon Johnson would lean in literally right in front of your face and tell you what you're going to vote for. We need President uh, Biden to have the same kind of a moment and to lean into voting rights, to, to, to match his actions with his words in his passionate speech a couple of weeks ago, where he said that this is the greatest threat since the Civil War. You can't tell us that in one sentence and then in the next sentence say, but I want to keep the filibuster. Those two things cannot go together. Yeah, and for what? I mean, it feels like there's this nostalgia mm -hmm. for a time when like white guys in the Senate could like get along even though they had different parties next to their names. Uh, and mm -hmm. that, you know, they're so proud of the fact that we're gonna get bipartisan uh, infrastructure bill passed, which, you know, I'm happy with that too. Mm -hmm. But the idea that that's the most important issue here seems kind of crazy talk. I mean, what's the most important issue here is having a democracy that can elect a majority and make it possible for them to do something. And, and we don't have that right now. Now, Ellie, what's interesting about your group is that you've pulled together a, uh, you know, a bunch of people who typically aren't out on the front lines arguing about what should happen to our democracy. I mean, you've got a lot of people like you who have experience in th inside the Senate and they have a real sense and a love for the Senate like Joe Biden has, but a real sense of, why this institution has now corrupted the function of the Senate and made it so fixing the Senate in the way that your group would push it as a fundamental maybe first step. I wonder when you began to organize these people, what the conversation was like. Like, how did you convince them to come out of the woodwork to say, okay, I've been a staffer, I've been a supporter of the institution, but now we've got to save the institution if we're going to save this democracy? Yeah, that, that's a great question. I think that, that that is one of the reasons I feel so optimistic is because there truly are more and more people who respect the Senate, who think, who works for the Senate, who understand that there are deep problems in the Senate, but know that we're not getting a constitutional amendment to, to get rid of it anytime soon. They want the Senate to work. Uh, and 
it, it was a process. So there are people who came before me. There are people who spent many, many years working on this. Senator Merkley is someone who has been a leader on this. He has spent 10 years in the Senate every day writing memos, telling people, telling his colleagues, this just doesn't make sense, spreading these ideas. More and more people uh, outside, people like Cliff and others who have engaged with people in the conversation about this. And we are now at the point when it doesn't take much persuasion to many people who care about the Senate. People who worked in the Senate can look at what is going on now and they can see that is nothing like the filibuster of their day. We just had a letter that was signed by 31 former chiefs of staff, led by a former chief of staff to Senator Johnson of South Dakota, Senator Kennedy uh, from Massachusetts. And they made that point that they were in the Senate. They saw how the Senate worked. The filibuster is nothing like the way it is now. So that is a big shift from where things were. And one thing that makes me so confident that we're going to succeed is that we now have a coalition of people who, like me uh, and, and many, many others, who think that the filibuster was always a bad idea, You know, who think that the filibuster just doesn't make sense in today's Senate. We should get rid of it, even if it wasn't being abused. But then we now are joined by many, many people, moderates, uh, as people, establishment, people who really like institutionalists, people who care deeply about the Senate, who can say, I support the filibuster. I have supported the filibuster. I think in the past it worked, but it's being abused. It is clearly now not working the way it was intended to work. And that is something that you're even hearing that from Senator Manchin when he says things like the filibuster used to be more painful and maybe we should go back to that. You hear that from President Biden who said, Maybe we should go back to a talking filibuster who said uh, that if Republicans are obstreperous, he would consider doing something like that. So that is what, something that is very encouraging to me, that that's the message that we've been delivering. So we worked with our coalition over the past year. We've had hundreds of conversations with, with groups, from gun safety groups to climate groups, immigration groups, civil rights, voting rights, uh, across the, the spectrum. People who care about issues, whose members care about issues. And we help them connect the dots between the issues they care about and the Senate filibuster that is a brick wall standing in the way. And th this is something Cliff mentioned that I think is so smart. And again, why I'm so confident that we're going to win right now, uh, maybe, you know, however long it takes, we will win eventually, is that members cannot go home after they were elected by voters and say, I wish I could have done it, but it's this, this filibuster. We needed 60 votes. There has been a level of education that has gone on at the grassroots level and the grass tops level and everywhere in between, where now that's not going to be an acceptable excuse. Members will go home, senators will go home, and they will say, I just couldn't pass this gun safety bill, had 90% support among the public, but it got filibustered. And their voters are going to say to them, why didn't you change the filibuster? It just takes 50 votes. The filibuster wasn't intended to be used this way. That's why we worked so hard to educate people. I know that's why Cliff and, and so many others did the same. Uh, and I think that's going to make a real difference right now. So let's let's focus a little bit on what the change could look like. And then we're going to start taking questions from the audience. So if you have a question just in the Q&A uh, box, you can put it and I'll put it and be fed up uh, to me here. But um, so Ellie, um, you know, obviously there's a possibility to go back to Madison's rules and eliminate all of the, uh, you know, anything like a filibuster. But short of that, what are the most plausible changes that could get us a Senate that would be uh, uh, even a little bit more responsive? Sure. Well, I'll start by saying that I, I think the best thing that the Senate Democrats could do right now is eliminate the filibuster. That is the cleanest, best option that would move the Senate in the right direction. And then if there are further updates that are needed, they can do that. It will not take away deliberation. It would not take away compromise. In fact, I think it would 
it would actually generate more bipartisanship and more compromise if the Republicans knew, the minority knew that bills could move, whether they were with them or without or not. They couldn't simply obstruct. They have stronger incentive to come to the table. That being said, I think it's pretty clear based on Senator Manchin, Senator Cinema, that at least in the short term, we're much more likely to get reform than elimination. So when I think about reforms, the prism through which I view them is, will they ultimately allow bills to pass with a simple majority? Maybe it takes some time. Maybe there's some deliberation. Maybe there's some openness for the minority to have amendments or, or to have additional procedural tools. Uh, but at the end of the day, can a bill with majority support pass the Senate? If yes, it's a good reform. It's at least worth considering. It moves us in the right direction. If no, it, it very well could be just another tool that Senator McConnell can use to create more delay and more gridlock. So quickly, the, the two reforms that are most discussed right now are a talking filibuster, a return to what most people think of as the filibuster, where members have to go actually hold the floor, make their case. They can't just email a filibuster in like they do now, where a member can literally send an email to their leadership, say, I refuse to give consent, I intend to filibuster, and that creates a 60-vote threshold. It ends that. It forces the minority to hold the floor. Now, a strong version, one that actually Senator Manchin mentioned, uh, one that, that you've talked about, Larry, and others, is putting the onus on the minority to produce 41 to hold the floor instead of putting the onus on the majority to produce 60. If you do that, if you force them to, any member could come to the floor and say, I want to end debate, and the minority has to produce 41 votes at 3 a.m. on a Saturday, on a Sunday afternoon, there is a limit to how much time the minority will be able to keep 41 members in D.C. to keep that filibuster going. So that, I think, would be a step in the right direction, but the devil's in the details. And then the second thing I'll mention quickly is something that um, the former Senator Doug Jones mentioned, uh, who Stacey Abrams has mentioned, uh, Senator uh, Representative Clyburn, and many others, which is a democracy carve-out. Some people have called it a John Lewis carve-out, where the idea that, that, that was mentioned before, that voting rights is so critical, it is so core to our democracy. You do not have a democracy if people are excluded from the franchise, if people are not allowed to participate. This should not be something that can be held up uh, by a minority. That if it, there are already exemptions to the filibuster for reconciliation, where you could pass a budget with a simple majority, you could put a Supreme Court justice on the bench for a lifetime with a simple majority, you could pass trade deals. There are many exceptions to the filibuster. This should be another one. So this argument goes that voting rights should be something that can pass with a simple majority. I, of course, think that would also be a step in the right direction. Yeah, I'll put one more on the table and then I have a question for Cliff. Um, my colleague, Matt Stevenson, and um, his uh, co-authors have proposed the idea of changing the filibuster to have a majority of the majority rule, meaning you need a majority vote, and that majority has got to represent more people than the other side, so that you need uh, mm -hmm. more votes and more people. And if more votes and more people are on your side, then you get to bring a vote to closure. Um, and, and it's really important to recognize the difference between needing 60 votes to proceed versus 41 to stop. Because, you know, the most outrageous thing about what happened with the For the People Act, you have a bunch of people defending the filibuster by saying, you know, what this does is it protects the right of deliberation. Okay, fine. Right. When they tried to deliberate on the For the People Act, the first thing they had to do was to get 60 votes. They didn't get 60 votes, so there was no debate, no deliberation. It is, as somebody has said, a complete fraud, this idea of this filibuster serving the role of deliberation or protecting minority rights or anything else like that. Um, okay, so, but Cliff, 
I, I have two parts to this question. One is how, so the, the general thrust is, this is the question coming from uh, the questions in the Q&A. Um, how do we get there? And that's really two things. One is how do we get Biden, President Biden, uh, you know, the Joe we love to love um, there so that he thinks I've got to be Lyndon Johnson and do this. But more precisely, how do we get Senators Sinema and Manchin, who seem to be the critical blocks here, um, to see why they need to do something here? I mean, what, what are the practical reality, uh, practical political realities that will make those two things happen? Yeah, I think there's a, a couple of ways to go about it, right? But, it, but first, let me just say, just counter on the irony of what you were just talking about. Here we have a Senate that prides itself on being called the world's most deliberative body, and yet they've got a procedure in place that literally, literally keeps them from being able to deliberate, right? You can't; those two things can't go together. Uh, but I think that there's a couple of ways that you know we can uh, get Manchin, Cinema, and and President Biden. You know, it's going to take. A lot of action. It's going to take a lot of pressure. We know that it's going to take phone calls and text messages, and and folks have been doing an incredible job of, of doing that literally for weeks and months now. But it's going to have to take more than that, right? It's going to have to take people in the streets. It's going to have to take some of the same things that unfortunately it took in, in 1965. By that, I don't mean hopefully hundreds of people getting beat up on a bridge in Selma, but it's going to take direct confrontation, direct action, some people getting arrested um, in order to dramatize the issues that, that, that we're talking about and to make it be clear. So it's going to take all of that. And we're committed to doing that. A lot of our partners have been committed to doing that. Um, you know, shout out, I want to recognize Melanie Campbell and, and Black Women's Roundtable, which, which which did one of the early actions that um, got a congressperson arrested. But in addition to that, I think it's, it's going to take this, this combination of all of that, but also this, this pressure, even on those people that are our friends, right? In other words, it's not enough just for us on the outside to be pressuring the mansions and the cinemas, or as I call them, mansionima. Uh, you know, it's going to take it's going to take some of the senators putting more pressure. Yes, we know that there are forty nine co sponsors of the For the People Act. Great, they all support it, but we need them to put pressure on their colleagues in order to get them to, to delay the recess, in order to get them to, to agree to, to end or modify the filibuster. It's not enough that you support the, the For the People Act. You've got to support using whatever you whatever power you have, whatever leverage you have with your colleagues in order to get it done. Part of that might include that, you know, we're at a point now where, you know, Joe Manchin isn't the only person that can play this game of being the biggest, you know, the most important kid in the class, right? Somebody else in the Senate eventually might get around to saying, look, if we're not going to get voting rights, then we're also not going to get infrastructure. You know, we've been saying recess can wait. We might be at a point now where we need a senator to say infrastructure can wait. Or it may not even necessarily need to be a senator. Maybe it's some some House members or or, or a coalition of, of, of um, a caucus within the House that might say, well, whatever y'all pass in the Senate, when it comes back to the House, it's not going anywhere until we get voting rights. So there's a, a, a few different strategies that we can use. And as in anything else, it's this combination of an inside game and an outside game where, you know, we need the activism going on outside. We need the, 
the, the pressure points going on inside. And we and we need some people can do both of those. Cori Bush just showed us that being a legislator doesn't mean that you're no longer an activist. Right. And so we need some senators who are willing to be activists. We need some senators that will be willing to sit with us. There were some people sitting on the steps of the Senate last night trying to pick up where Cori Bush left off to deliver the message that recess can wait until voting rights are dealt with. We need a senator to do the same thing that Cory, Congresswoman Bush and her staff did, paving the way and creating the space for activists to be able to do that. So we need an inside game and an outside game, but we also need that nexus of folks who are on the inside building to be activists. If we if we really want to live up to the, the legacy of a, of, a, of a John Lewis, who at one point even did a sit-in in the, on the floor of the House, right? We need that spirit in this Congress in order to get the voting rights. And we can't do it all from the outside. We're going to do everything we can, right? But we need folks who are on the inside. We need senators. And we need this president to fully lean in to the struggle. You can't save the soul of the nation if you're unclear about just how cancerous that soul has become. And if you're unclear or in denial about from whence that cancer came. We need Joe Biden to, to ask himself, to look in the mirror and ask some very hard questions to get rid of the nostalgia and come to terms with the true nature of the Senate that he currently has on his hand. He's got over 40 years of Senate experience. You can't tell me that he doesn't know how to whip one vote, you know, because if that's the case, that then those decades of Senate experience aren't doing us a, a heck of a lot of good on this foundational issue. So that's the, the combination of strategies that I think it's going to take. Ellie, um, from the perspective you had inside the Senate, would you add anything to that? Or, is, or is, does Cliff have a fair characterization of exactly what we need now? I think Cliff is exactly right. I think uh, what, what we are seeing right now from President Biden and the White House on infrastructure shows that they can make a difference, that they can actually influence the Senate. I mean, it was it was very strange hearing their messaging a few weeks ago after his speech or around his speech around that town hall that Cliff mentioned, where they were they they he laid out in almost apocalyptic terms the grave threat to our democracy, but then didn't follow it up with any actual plan. In fact, almost seemed to accept defeat, accept that these voter suppression laws were going to be implemented, that calling on communities who had already done so much to just simply out-organize and, and, and run uphill again and again, and, and then to hear the White House tell reporters and say publicly that this is a Senate issue, it's going to be decided by the Senate, only to see President Biden one week later go to the Senate Democratic Caucus lunch and make the case for infrastructure. His press secretary read out to the press that he spent the weekend making phone calls, whipping on the infrastructure bill. The idea, if, if anyone asked five years ago in a 50-50 Senate with conservative Democrats, if Democrats would be able to get big bills like the American Rescue Plan, like this uh, reconciliation bill that's going to come down the pike, they would have said, no, that's tough. But the reason it's getting done is because President Biden said, this is what I care about. This is my priority. He is staking his presidency on it. He is twisting those arms and he is making it happen. He could absolutely do that on voting rights. We are so close. We have 50 Democrats on board with strong voting rights legislation. We have members saying that the filibuster cannot stand in the way. We have Leader Schumer saying failure is not an option and everything is on the table. I am convinced as someone who worked in the Senate and, and just sees this now every day, if President Biden made this a priority, if he listened to the voices 
who are who are his allies, people like Representative Clyburn and many others, telling him that this is the right thing to do. This is a president who we know feels the weight of history. He brought historians into the White House to talk to him about what great presidents did. That's what a great president does. I mean, Cliff mentioned LBJ again. LBJ was counseled by his advisors after uh, Kennedy was killed. Do not, he had to give a, a State of the Union address or a joint address to Congress days later. His aides told him, Robert Carroll recounted this, do not talk about civil rights. If you talk about civil rights, the rest of your agenda will go down the drain because Southern Democrats will not let anything move. And he said, what the hell is the presidency for if not for that? This is what power is for. He went, he gave that speech, staring at his former mentor, um, his former uh, Senator Russell, uh, a racist who is his former mentor and the leader of the Southern Bloc. And he said, we are going to get this civil rights bill done. And he did. And he got the rest of his agenda done. That is what a true leader does. And that, that's also, again, I, I go keep going back to confidence. I think President Biden's going to get there. I think he is hearing from these from these leaders who are telling him uh, who there was such a such a backlash to the speech he gave in the town hall. I am confident that he's going to get there uh, in no small part due to the work of Cliff and so many other people on the ground making their voices heard and the inside game that's keep pushing from the leaders that we have inside the Senate. Guys, it's astonishing Richard Russell, who still has a name on a Senate office building, um, was the fundamental force stopping progress uh, until his mentee stood up to him. That's exactly right. I want to focus a little bit about money here or how you know money in American politics affects this. One of the most striking reports I read was of a telephone call or a conference call with the No Labels Group. And uh, Joe Manchin, who has some honorary role in the No Labels Group. And they were talking about the need to avoid filibuster reform. And um, the reason it was so important to them was it quite clear from that call, it would remove the power of big money in Congress if there were filibuster reform. And you know, the lead, one of the leaders of the PAC, um, not a congressperson, but one of the um, uh, um, represent one of the people who's organized the PAC, described the dynamic of the PAC, the uh, no labels inside of Congress. And they describe how members of Congress, especially uh, in the House, spend such an extraordinary amount of time raising money and they can come in and lay $50,000 on the table, he said, not quite clear how they do that, but lay $50,000 on the table. And if they do that, then they know they have that representative because that representative is so grateful that they don't have to spend two days raising that 50000 or however long it takes to raise that $50,000. So here was big money because no labels just gathers together the biggest money there is, um, ostensibly putting themselves forward as this great reform organization, but pitching the idea that we should not reform this deeply anti-democratic feature of our government because it would reduce the impact of money in politics. Now, of course, HR1 would do that as well by passing the um, small donor public funding, what I think is one of the most critical things in that bill after the voting rights provisions and, and gerrymanderings after that. But it's quite amazing that you have people openly willing to acknowledge that the status quo gives them the rich, the, the easiest ability to block. Um, now, you know, have you seen things like this, Cliff, in your conversations about this on the Hill? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you raised that because a lot of people don't know 
that you know that that the the Florida People Act deals with more than just the the, the voter access, the ballot access, um, um, you know, uh, days of voting and all of that. They don't know about the other pieces. Maybe they know about the gerrymandering piece um, and the redistricting piece. But the part that you just mentioned, you know, the, the part about money and politics and campaign finance reform is a critically important aspect of the For the People Act. And, and one of the things that, you know, we try to talk about with voters, community members, as well as with uh, elected officials is, you know, just the importance of, of, of keeping that in. And as you got all these negotiations going on, that that not get, you know, kicked off to the side. It's important to note that, you know, the, the, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce is against the For the People Act, right? Um, many of the companies, we did a whole, and when I say we, you know, Black Voters Matter, a lot of our partners, and I got to mention my dear friend, Sister Latasha Brown, co-founder, we did a whole campaign in the state of Georgia raising this issue of corporate accountability, right? Of, of, of looking at what their role is, because there are corporations that have been funding the very people that are pushing the voter suppression at the, at the state level. And so we are definitely concerned about the ability to, to have campaign finance reform, to, to, to hold those who are, are trying to use their, their money as influence in the political process. That's a critical piece of, of the For the People Act that we don't want to see get chopped up in the, in the negotiation process. Yeah. Um, Ellie, I want to I want to give you a chance to explain one of the big justifications that's offered here for the filibuster. This comes from a question. Do you agree with the statement from um, from this questioner? Quote, the 60 vote requirement is meant to protect the minority from majority tyranny. It was intended to force compromise and coalition building. Is that your understanding of what the modern filibuster is? Absolutely not. It's the it's the exact opposite. It, it is it has become a tool that the minority uses to block the majority. That's it. It has become a tool of obstruction, uh, and I think it's it's important to understand too. And this gets to what you mentioned about no labels. And actually, I appreciate that that came out, and it and people get to see what they don't get to normally see how these big donors, these big bundlers, talk to senators behind closed doors because it really is. Uh, it offers a real window into how some how power works. They know that the filibuster allows them not just to have 41 members to stop legislation instead of 51 members, because, yes, that's important. They need 41 members. We saw that with gun safety, where background checks, the NRA was not able to get 50 members or 51. The bill got 54 votes, but they were able to get 41 members and they were able to stop that bill. But they are able able to member one member they drop that fifty thousand to maybe and that member is able to hold everything up and maybe the bill never even sees the light of day because it would be so torturous and so long and time on the senate calendar is such a valuable commodity the best example of this is waxman markey in 2009 2010 when that passed the house it never even came up for a vote in the senate now maybe it would get 50 votes i think it would have it certainly wasn't going to get 60 votes but it never even came up for a debate because big oil and and their lobbies lobbyists they they knew they would have at least one member and many more willing to stand up and block that and extend the process and make it so hard for Lee to read and democrats that it wasn't even worth it because it wasn't going to pass it wasn't going to get 60 there are so many examples like that uh, over and over that we see that that you know just the insidious pernicious impact of the filibuster on the Senate. And you see that again and again. So it, it is not the case that the filibuster promotes bipartisanship. It is not the case that it protects the minority. There are many ways that the minority has a voice. We have 
so many veto points in our government uh, that the minority has many opportunities to get a voice. There's an amendment process. There's a committee process. There's actual deliberation and debate. That doesn't mean that at the end of the day, after all of that deliberation, after all of that debate, that a bill should not be able to come up for an up or down vote, especially when people are demanding it. People are expecting it. People put down in this case, people put Democrats in power to deliver results. And they didn't say if McConnell lets you, if the minority lets you. They actually want results. They want things done. Uh, and I, like I said before, they are not going to accept the excuse that we couldn't do it because of the filibuster. So can, Cliff, I, can I add on to that, Larry, just quickly? You know, because there's it's one of the ironic things is, you know, even as Senator Manchin and others talk about what you just raised, you know, oh, protecting uh, the, the, the rights of minorities and the legislature and, and all of that. These as if you look at these bills at the state level, what's happening is is exactly the opposite of what Senator Manchin and others say they want to see happen. These bills are being rammed through these state legislat legislatures. In Georgia, they took a two-page bill, turned it into a 98-page bill, and then literally introduced it one day. And by lunch of the of the next day, the following day, it was passed by both houses and signed by Governor Kemp beneath the picture of a slave plantation, if you recall. But it was passed by both houses and signed by Governor Kemp in, in, in less than 24 hours. Same thing in Texas. Same thing happening in Florida. It's happened in Florida. And so, you know, you can't simultaneously say that you that you're uh, worshiping the filibuster because you, you want to preserve the rights of minority parties in, in, in the Senate while you are literally sitting by and fiddling as these state legislatures are, are just ramming all kinds of Jim Crow voter suppression through the state legislatures. Yeah, I mean, but, you know, this big call for bipartisanship stops when you get to the state legislatures because there's no mm -hmm. bipartisan support in the state legislatures for these voting right. suppression bills. Right. It's funny, I have, I have never heard a single supporter of the filibuster advocate that the filibuster be implemented in states. Yeah. They ignore that. And no state has the filibuster. West Virginia, where mm -hmm. Senator Manchin was governor, doesn't have the filibuster. I've never heard him or anyone else say, let's institute a filibuster in the states, because they know it doesn't truly make sense. Um, okay, so Cliff, uh, help us understand another, here's another question that comes up, a little puzzle question, see if you can unpack it. Um, President Biden at the CNN forum we've talked about said, there's no reason to protect it, speaking of the filibuster, other than you're going to throw the entire Congress into chaos and nothing will get done, nothing at all will get done. And there's lots at stake. The most important one is the right to vote. That's the single most important one. Okay, so the question is, what the hell does that mean? How do you throw Congress into chaos by having a majority system in a majoritarian institution? Like, what, what is the chaos that, that he's talking about? Right. The, the only chaos that I, that I can imagine is, you know, the chaos that we might actually get <laughs> get an agenda that's actually moved that, again, the, the majority of the country supports. You know, we, we talk about bipartisanship. Uh, you know, you got to think about how you're measuring bipartisanship. You pointed out earlier, Larry, or, or maybe it was Ellie, 80% uh, of the country supports the For the People Act, including a, a, a close to a majority of, of Republicans. Even in Joe Manchin's own state, a majority supports the For the People Act. Gun control, you know, common sense gun control, background checks, vast, 90 something percent supports these things. And so if you're defining bipartisanship just on people in the country, voters in the country, community members, then these things are wildly popular. But if you're defining bipartisanship 
by looking at the very group of people who literally tried to overturn the election. If you're defining bipartisanship by, by a group of people who you could not get a single vote on the Republican side to investigate what happened on January 6th, if that's your, your, your benchmark for how you're going to define bipartisanship, then you have failed epically before you've even started the fight. And so that's that's where we're going up against. And, you know, we just got to continue to 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 point that to point that out. OK, so we're going to go a couple minutes over um, because there's so many great questions. Here's another one. Um, uh, I think this is a really fair way of putting it. The question says, I'm all for putting pressure on President Biden. We are, too. Uh, but don't we have to recognize that the more relevant the word villain is used in this question? But, you know, OK, our villains are Joe Manchin and uh uh, Kristen uh, Cinema, and of course the GOP pseudo moderates who will march in step with the odious uh, Mitch McConnell. What can be done about Mansion and Cinema? LBJ had not only strong Democratic majorities, but also the cooperation of the minority leader, the Republican Everett Dirksen, who gave a truly great speech to support the Voting Rights Act um, on why the filibuster had to be broken to support the filibuster uh, uh, to to support the Voting Rights Act. But what do we? What can be done about the two senators we know are most likely uh, to block this? Let me start with Ellie and then um, Cliff. Why don't you say something about that? Sure. Um, first of all, this questioner has a way with words, so I, I, I can appreciate that. Um, I, it's it's a good question. I, I think that there, there's a few things. So first of all, it's important to note that we know Senator Manchin is actually on board with the reform. That that um, conversation that you mentioned with no labels that was leaked, he didn't intend to come out. He explicitly says he is open to reform. I would also say Senator Cinema wrote an op-ed saying she would never eliminate the filibuster. She has defended the filibuster. She has never said she would not change a single thing about the filibuster. So first of all, so I think we have a path. I think we have a path where Senator Manchin, Senator Cinema can stay stay true to their principles. They can say they protected the filibuster, they strengthened the filibuster, they made the Senate work better, they promoted bipartisanship with some common sense reforms. And I think that's attainable. I also think that President Biden can make a difference, and we're seeing that. I think that we are close enough where if he weighs in, if he makes it clear that this is his priority, this is about our democracy, he is staking his presidency, his reputation, his political capital on this, he can move two members. Presidents have done far more in far more difficult circumstances. Right now, we have a caucus that general, there's a consensus view that voting rights is important. They have 50 Democrats who are ready to be on board this bill. I think we're inches from the finish line. And President Biden's the only one, I think, who could push us over, and he can. Cliff? Yeah, I agree completely. I mean, I think, you know, first of all, you know, even at, at that historical example where people say, oh, well, LBJ had, you know, he had a Democratic majority. You know, people forget a Democrat in New York and a Democrat in Chicago at that time was not the same as a Democrat from Mississippi or from Alabama, right? Just just having a Democratic majority didn't mean that he had all the votes that he needed. He had to work to make that happen. The same thing that, that President Biden is, has to has to do um, right now. But the, but the other piece is this. The question assumes that there's no pressure uh, being put on, on Manchin and Cinema, right? We, we saw just last week, again, dozens of people getting arrested in, in, in Arizona because of a, uh, an action that was taking place there. We did a whole freedom ride that went to, to, to 10 states in nine days, one of which was West Virginia, where we stopped and did a whole rally 
which was largely targeted at, at Joe Manchin, including lifting up the voices of, again, those folks in West Virginia who support the um, the For the People Act. You know, there was a lot, there was a, a poll done the other day that shows that Chris, Kirsten Cinema is losing support, that her favorability is down because of some of her position. So there's been pressure put on both of them, but we got to walk and chew gum at the same time. We got to put pressure on them and be willing to put pressure on President Biden. A lot of times when people ask that question, and I don't want to assume anything for, for this particular person, but a lot of times when people ask that question, they're not really saying, why don't you also put pressure on Manchin and Cinema? What they're really saying is, why don't we leave President Biden alone? And we can't do that, right? We have got to, unfortunately, include him in this discussion. He's got a role that he can play. He's got um, um, tools at his disposal that he can use on, on Manchin and Cinema. And it's 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 not just fair game. It would be um, neglect, uh, if negligence, if we did not also include President Biden in this discussion, asking him to lean in to all of these issues, the filibuster, delaying recess, and so on and so forth. He's got to he's got to play a role in this process the same way that he's playing a role in the infrastructure battle, right? If he can do it on that, then he needs to at least do as much on an issue that he said, his words, was the biggest threat since the Civil War. I don't think that's a lot to ask. One of my favorite Obama speeches was when he was a candidate in April 2008. And he was speaking to the AFL-CIO in Philadelphia. And he said, if we don't take up the fight, he meant by that the fight to change Washington, real change, I know this now by heart, real change, change that will make a lasting difference in the lives of ordinary Americans will keep getting blocked by the defenders of the status quo. Mm -hmm. When Obama made that speech, we didn't yet have super PACs. When Obama made that speech, we did not have a party that was the leadership of which is openly advocating to pass bills to suppress the votes of their Democratic opponents. We didn't have a party that was uh, openly advocating bills that allow state legislatures to reject the votes of their people in a presidential election. We didn't have the supercharged uh, gerrymandering technologies of big data, which in 2010, uh, uh, Dave Daly showed us uh, in 2010 were so instrumental in radically changing, producing inequality in the United States uh, Senate. And we didn't have a Supreme Court that basically was willing to wash their hands of any obligation to take up the fight to make sure that we have a democracy that represents people equally. We are so much worse off from the standpoint of democracy than we were when Obama called on us to take up that fight. And what's so hopeful is that right now, HR1, if we can get it through the Senate in its current form, or at least close to the current form, would address the vote suppression problem, would address the gerrymandering problem, would address the money in politics problem, would do as much as we can do about Citizens United. It would be a final chance for us to take up the fight and do something about it. And this is our only chance to get it done. So the work that you two are doing, I think, and the groups that you represent, the people that you uh, have pulled together is so extraordinarily important. And I'm grateful to the work that you're doing. Um, we've got a lot of people uh, still in the, in the room and we've got a lot of people watching by, um, by uh, simultaneous uh, broadcast here. And this will be alive for a long time. Give us your one minute or two minute final pitch about what they should be doing right now so that we take up this fight and finally deliver on what Barack Obama told us uh, 12 years ago we had to do. 
Um, let me start with Ellie and then Cliff, you have the last word. Great, I think right, this is a key moment. Uh, we, the clock is ticking, time is running out. We know that in the next couple of weeks, start, states are gonna start drawing their maps, they're gonna start gerrymandering, they're gonna start. Uh, voter suppression laws are going to be, un, they won't be able to, to um, unwind them as we get close to the election. People need to make their voices heard. This is the moment, there's no more time to waste. Make sure legislators will go on recess if they don't get it done before recess, see them at events, make, call their office, show up at their doors, tell them this is important to you. Tell them that the filibuster cannot be an excuse to stand in the way. Say it's the Jim Crow filibuster. Let them know you know the history of the filibuster. People can make a difference. I know someone who worked in the Senate, any staffer knows that people actually, the senators actually listen to their constituents, especially back home at their events, back home in their districts. It matters. People, people have an opportunity now to say, we have a choice the filibuster or our democracy? Where do you stand? What are you going to do about it? And I think that can make a real difference. Excellent. Cliff. Yeah, I'm going to give two answers to that. You know, one is, the, one is the practical and one is the imaginative, right? On the practical side, everything that Ellie just said, right? It's, it's, it's getting connected to an organization. It doesn't have to be like Voters Matter, right? It doesn't have to be uh, in Citizens United, you know, it doesn't have to be DFAT, but get connected to some organization that is working on this issue. They've all got toolkits and phone numbers that you can call and text messages that you can send and, and, and actions that you can take. DFAT's got a whole National Day of Action coming up on August 10th. And so get connected to an organization. There are lots of concrete actions that you can take in person and, 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 and virtually. But the other way to answer that is this. And my, my sister comrade, Latasha, always talks about We've got to have a radical reimagining of, of, of this democracy, right? And, and I'll take it even further. We've got to have a radical reimagining of what's possible, of what our own power is to make change, to make change in our lives, to make change in governance, to make change in, 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 in the way that we conceive of what elected officials look like. We've got to have a reimagining. We've got to, I always say that we are in the business of, of taking the impossible and, and making it possible. That's what we do on a daily basis. That's what we do in history. And be clear, we are making history with the decisions that we make every day. We have the power to, to, to make the change, to be the change that we wanna see, but we've gotta believe that that's possible. And a lot of times that's where we fall short because we have been trained for so long to believe that we don't have that power, that somebody else has that power, that they've been you know, uh, uh, given that responsibility. We have the power to get this done. And I believe that that's what we're gonna get done. I'm gonna say it even further. I believe we're gonna get it done before the end of August. Yeah, I agree with you on that. Um, I, we did a poll a long time ago where we found 91% uh, of Americans, I mean, sorry, 96% of Americans thought it important to end the uh, influence of money in politics. 91% didn't think it was possible. And that's sure. the politics of resignation. Sure. What that tells us is the most important thing to do is to convince people something can be done. We have yes. never been this close. We have never been this close to reform as fundamental. And so if we can just convince I think it's really one, but maybe it's two. If we can convince two people, we can radically change the character of what mm. the future, the next 10 years of America will look like. So I so honor you both for the work that you and your groups have done. Thank you. Thank you for joining, taking up this fight. Um, uh, you can go to uh, equalcitizens.us slash it must go. And we've got tools there where you can uh, reach out and join organizations and, 
and reach out to uh, representatives and uh, to senators to get them to do the right thing. Um, I'm grateful to both for participating, grateful to Jana for helping us get this going and to my team, especially Adam Eichen, um, uh, who has done an extraordinary job to pull it together. And our, um, um, we have two uh, interns who have been working uh, tirelessly uh, on this. McNoor uh, uh, has been doing this forever and Kevin uh, Rissmiller has been fighting this fight as long as he's been with us. We're grateful for the support. Please share this as broadly as you can when you are, are finished and we put it, post it up so that we can get as many people to watch and to, to get engaged as we can. Thank you so much for joining us and um, to the fight tonight.